Welcome to Leadership Moments. In every great leader's life, there are pivotal moments that shape their character, test their resilience, and awaken their vision. Together, we'll uncover the invaluable lessons hidden within these transformative moments. Today, our guest is Jennifer Reimer of Virtuous Radical Leadership in Ontario, Canada. Jennifer spent over 20 years in the corporate world and as a strategy consultant, working for and with organizations such as Nestle, AB and Bev, and Old Mutual. She has taught leadership at a postgraduate level and studied leaders for her PhD degree. Jennifer now helps corporate women step out of the hustle and into their feminine power so they lead with grace and courage. Jennifer lives in Niagara on the lake with her husband, Sherwin, daughter, Leah, and their husky lab named Billy Holiday. Today, we are going to talk about how understanding patterns and asking great questions can help you implement leadership behaviors that maybe you have struggled with before. Let's jump in. Hi, Jen. Thank you so much for being on our show today. I am super excited for our listeners to hear your story. So why don't we dive right in and why don't you talk about, you have a great story when you were in corporation and how it defined you as a leader. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I'll jump right into it. Listening to your podcast, I was trying to think about one moment that was sort of a highlight for me. And there are so many small moments that shifted and changed things in my life. So let me start with a little bit of backstory. I'm Canadian and I moved to South Africa in 2009 on a whim. I wanted to work in sustainability and socioeconomic development. And I had this opportunity to go there that didn't actually even pan out when I got there. But I went and I ended up working on a research project actually for Harvard University for about a year, making a pittance. I loved it. I got to travel everywhere. I was in Kenya and Rwanda and all these interesting places. After a year, I was starting to get low on cash. It fell on my lap, this job from Nestle. Somebody called me up and said Nestle needed help. I had worked previously in Canada for Nestle. And so I took it because I needed the cash. So I thought I'd gotten off the corporate ladder and I got back on. And there's a whole story about going back to corporate after leaving, but I'm going to focus in on what I was doing in this job. My job was to roll out a strategic process. At the time, Nestle in South Africa had quite a lot of disjoints between their sales, marketing, finance teams. And so they hired me to roll out a new process that was going to help align all these different teams. It was a senior leadership role. This was the kicker. I didn't have the title, like director title or something like that. And so I had to lead this group of 80 to 100 people. So it meant I was documenting processes. I was training people on what this process was going to be. I was creating strategic templates, facilitating workshops to help people develop their strategies, but they had to follow this new process. And because I didn't have a big title, all of this felt very bold and audacious to me. My boss was on the executive team and he gave me permission to do this. He gave me the backing to do it. It felt really bold for me to just walk in there from another country and tell all these people what to do. And I learned a couple of things from this. One was in this very particular moment and another one was years later. So I want to talk about the in-moment one first. So because I didn't have this title and everything felt so bold and bossy, the way I went about rolling out this process was to politic. 
which to me was trying to get buy-in from everybody. So I spent my days literally all day talking to people, getting people's opinions about how this should roll out. I saw it as getting buy-in, but I think it was also looking for people's direction because some of these people were above me. I was also trying to roll out this process to executives and directors who were above me. So it felt a little bit intimidating telling them what to do. I spent all my days talking to people and I'd eventually get to the real work at the end of the day when I was exhausted. I was also stressing myself out, trying to make everybody happy, trying to please everybody and, and constantly talking to everybody. And one day I was talking to this one guy. I think I was probably trying to ask his opinion too. And he finally said, Jen, can I swear on this show? <laughs> just fucking go do it. And I sort of stood back and went, he said, stop trying to please everybody and go do the thing. It was one of those penny dropping moments where I just went, oh, I'm trying so hard to please everybody. And I knew at that point already that I was a people pleaser, but I hadn't really put the pieces together on all the different ways that I was doing this at work. The recognition, the politicking, telling yourself a story that I'm just gaining buy-in. When did you realize that you weren't really just getting buy-in, that you actually were looking for confirmation? It wasn't until that moment, until that director literally said it to me. And now looking back, I don't even think I fully understood in that moment the gravity of what I was doing and how much that was affecting my career and holding me back. I thought it was moving me forward, but all it was doing was making me extra busy, causing me and my colleagues more work. And it was making me look like I couldn't make a decision. It wasn't helping my credibility. That I didn't realize in the moment. I only realized that years later. That's really great points. Sometimes when we hear feedback, it's hard to hear because we believe that we're doing everything right. You obviously have best intentions when you're doing it. And they're telling you to go a different direction than how you were planning on. How did you take that originally? And how did you transform that to really force yourself to start taking the initiative and moving forward? Oh, that's such a good question. The way I did it at first was I just pushed myself to try to do it. I like the way when you go on a diet and you just try to willpower yourself into not eating, but actually there's a whole bunch of emotional stuff you have to deal with first. When you go on a diet and you're eating when you're sad, you've got to actually deal with the sadness before you can stop eating. There's no amount of willpower that's going to help you stop eating the ice cream. In this case, I tried to kind of just pressure myself and discipline myself into making decisions. So to answer your first question, it wasn't easy to hear, but I took it for what it was worth. I trusted him and I knew that that was the right thing to do, but I didn't actually know how to get myself to do it other than the way that I'd always done things, which was to just discipline myself into it. And that didn't work very well, to be honest. Interesting. I can tell you what did work eventually. It, did, it didn't work in that company. This was kind of the lesson that I learned much later on. And that was the reason that I was trying to please everybody else was that I didn't believe that I deserved to be leading them. I didn't feel I was worthy. And so I wanted a bigger title. My boss kept sort of telling me, when you're ready, I'll give you the title. But I wanted the title before I led the people because that would validate me. I thought it would give me the authority to lead these people, but he'd already given me the authority and I didn't really realize that. It really came down to my own self-worth. And that's why the pushing didn't work because I had to deal with all of these feelings of undeserving before I could actually stop people pleasing. 
and making the decisions and leading more boldly. One thing that I like about that is we talk about self-worth a lot and the reality is everybody feels that at different levels, but everybody feels it. And I like how you say, I felt like I needed the title in order to act a certain way. And the reality is a true leader doesn't need the title. And so what are ways that you try to emulate or perform that you believe are important for a leader to do, even without the title? It's a good question. And my first reaction is to start thinking about all the behaviors of a great leader, which is what I used to teach when I taught leadership at a college level. And I left teaching at a college level because I know that that doesn't work. Instead of giving you kind of the behaviors that I started to do, I'll tell you what I did and now I work with women to help them do this. And that was to cultivate self-worth. I'll tell you in short what I did and then I'll tell you why it worked. So in short, I started to look at the subconscious patterns that were telling me that I wasn't worth the title. And once I started to release those patterns, I started naturally acting the title. I didn't start with the behaviors. I started with the self-worth. I didn't even know at first what that meant. Like, what is self-worth? I have confidence at work. What do you mean? I was very confident that I could take a strategy and get it implemented and get it done. If people said I had low self-worth at the time, I would have went, well, no, I'm confident. So it wasn't until later that, let's take people pleasing, for example, I realized that I was trying to make everybody happy. And I was afraid that if I did something wrong, I would get criticized. So I realized that there were these subconscious patterns, let's say unconscious fears, first of all, fear of criticism, fear that they won't like it, fear of sharing my voice. I was afraid of looking bossy because there was a childhood incident where my mom told me I was a bossy kid. So I had this fear of looking bossy. So there were all these fears that came up that were causing this pattern of people pleasing that I didn't realize. And once I started digging into those patterns and realizing that those patterns were driven by unworthiness and that I was just trying to prove my value, then I started just naturally acting like a leader. I started taking the reins more. I started speaking up more. I was more visionary. And these are more about the behaviors. I started to create that vision and share it. And simply by sharing it, people naturally wanted to follow me. So I didn't have to try to emulate these leadership behaviors. I love flipping it because we're taught leadership behaviors, leadership principles, and this is how you should act and do and be. But the fact that you say, look, we need to look at these patterns and why I am acting a certain way, even though I know I should be doing something different. I also talk about this a lot with my clients. And mm -hmm. you mentioned a really good thing, even something that was from childhood on how it impacts you. I think of it, it's a groove and you have to fill that in in a different format and different way. And that takes time. What are some recommendations that you would give to these listeners on how they can take some of these patterns and start transforming them to something different so you can start, you know, modeling those behaviors that you want to model? I'll tell you some of the behaviors first, because what we first need to do is to catch ourselves in the act. But if we don't know what the behaviors are, how do we catch ourselves in the act? And what I find is that a lot of people who have gotten to a certain level of leadership already know what they're doing. They just don't always know how to stop it. So I kind of knew I was a people pleaser, but 
I wasn't always catching myself in the act. And when I did, I didn't know how to stop it. I just pushed through. Like I said, in my programs, I talk about what I call the six managerial masks. I'll briefly just talk about the six of them. And then I'll talk about one, maybe people pleasing as we talk about perfectionism and problem solving, or what I call firefighting. Those are the three P's. And then there's three O's, over-responsiveness and over-accountability. A lot of people can recognize these things in themselves. Some people know, they'll say, I know that I'm a perfectionist. I just don't know how to stop it. Or I know I'm an overanalyzer. I get analysis paralysis is like the cliche word, but they don't necessarily know how to pull themselves out of it. Step one is understand what these six are and how they start to show up in your life. And I can go through a couple if we have time. Once you know what those six are, what I tell my clients to do is set an alarm for five times a day and at a minimum three times a day, maybe like on on a break or a lunch hour kind of thing and ask themselves and actually write down, what are they doing? What have they been up to? What have you been doing this morning? If it's at lunchtime, is it something that you needed to be doing? And then did it need to be done today? And when we start asking ourselves these questions, then you can start to go, oh, I was being a perfectionist. I was working on this report and I actually didn't need to do this report today, or I was doing this report, but it didn't need to be done really that perfectly because it's just for my team. It's not being presented to the board. So why was I trying to perfect it? And that's how you can start to catch yourself in the act. And then the next step is to ask yourself what you were afraid of in that moment. Once we start to understand our fear, so fear is like, am I going to get criticized? Am I unsafe in some way? Or am I going to feel a negative emotion? It's usually we're doing these things because we fear negative emotions. Am I going to feel ashamed? Am I going to damage my reputation? Could I be embarrassed? Could I feel guilty? Using our example of perfectionism in a report, what was the fear underneath it? And when we start to uncover those fears, then it becomes easier to catch yourself in the act and easier to release it because you can release a fear once you acknowledge it. Those are what I would say would be the easiest quick win steps to start digging into not only self-worth, but some un- what's underneath some of these behaviors. Very powerful questions. I love the self-reflection, needing to be honest with yourself as you ask yourself mm. those questions. The what are you afraid of is a very common question I ask myself and I ask my clients all the time. It's a very powerful question. Out of the three P's and the three O's, is there one that tends to occur more often that people find themselves in? People pleasing. I think it's possibly because people pleasing tends to be sort of inherent in the other ones. I'll give you an example. What I call over responsiveness is kind of self explanatory. It's that I need to respond to this email right now. I need to accept the meeting notices, even though I don't need to be in the meeting, but I feel guilty saying no, or I don't want to. Either you feel guilt saying no, or you're putting people up on a pedestal because you feel like they're waiting for a response. You're honoring their time more than you're honoring your own. You're accepting a meeting notice, even though you don't need to be there, but you feel like you should go because people expect you to. All of those things are kind of wrapped up in pleasing others and putting other people on a pedestal or putting their priorities first in terms of time or workloads. Even though I say there's six of them quite often, people pleasing is a very overarching one and it's by far the top. 
You gave some powerful questions that you could ask yourself, even in the people-pleasing, if you found that you're that way. Are there any other questions that you could recommend someone were to ask themselves if they know they're a people-pleaser, in addition to what you've already mentioned? Sometimes what I ask myself is not just what is the fear, but what is the narrative in my head? What I mean by that is what's the story I'm telling myself in that moment? I do this at home all the time with my husband. I used to get really upset when he didn't load the dishwasher properly, being my way of doing it. And and that's my perfectionism, which just as an aside, is a very sneaky one because I didn't think I was a perfectionist. I got good grades in school. I, I got 80, 85s in school, but I wasn't the one getting the 90s and 95s. So I always said, well, I'm not a perfectionist. So I didn't think I was until I realized that perfectionism is not just striving to be perfect. It's sometimes striving to have things the way they should be. And I'm using air quotes here because it's like the way you want them to be. So in this case, like with the dishwasher, I get really irritated with my husband when he didn't do it right, so-called right. And eventually I had to ask myself, what's this story I'm telling? What I came out with was he doesn't honor my wishes. He doesn't respect me. And when I dug really deep in there, it was, well, then if he doesn't respect me, then he doesn't love me. That's a very personal example. I like to give personal examples sometimes because they we can relate those back to work as well. Once I go through that process and what was that narrative and what was I believing about myself? So there's another question. What's the narrative and what are you believing about yourself in that moment? That helps me get to the bottom of it. Oh, that's where I felt unworthy. I didn't feel loved. And that's just ridiculous. He still doesn't load the dishwasher properly. And I've given all of that up now because now I know that that doesn't mean anything about how lovable I am or how much he respects me. He just can't. It's impossible for him. I've accepted that. Once we get to the bottom of them, of what's irritating us and triggering us, then the behaviors just go away or new behaviors just replace them. It's a great example. I agree with you. Some people would be like, load the dishwasher, who cares? But when it matters to you, it can be a trigger and understanding that and saying, you know what, this is probably a little unusual. So maybe I should ask myself these questions. I like how you do that. How do you hold yourself accountable to try to self-identify and ask yourself these questions when you're going through that? I was going to say it's easy for me to hold myself accountable because I'm so fascinated with human behavior. However, on second thought, that's not exactly correct because I still don't like to look at my own behavior and I don't like to be honest with myself. That's the part that takes some discipline. Stacked up the evidence and I had enough evidence of when I did these things, I started to change without trying anymore. It started to become naturally and I stopped acting like a monster at work. I stacked up some evidence for it. That coupled with this fascination that every time I figured out the narrative, I had this aha moment that was satisfying. But the hardest part is being honest with myself and not wanting to actually dig in and understand where that negative feeling came from. That's the hardest part because usually it comes from some shameful moment like the one I mentioned earlier when my mom told me I was bossy when I was four. You don't want to remember those (laughs) occasions. For those, I do have to discipline myself into being honest with myself and remember how good I feel later. Once you start to let these things start, you'd probably know this, Stacey, things start to flow and you start to feel good. So I have to remember those. It's 
getting a little bit of recognition encourages you to move forward. Okay, the work I'm doing is really helping. It is helping me move forward. Hopefully sharing it with others too and having a coach as well can help you through that. So totally agree with you. I definitely had various coaches throughout the whole process who are forcing me a little bit. That helps. Yes, definitely. Good. I'd like to go back to almost the beginning of our conversation where you were talking about that one leader that told you to move forward when you were at Nestle. And you said a comment of, it's because I trusted him. What do you think leaders need to do to build that trust? So when they do give that feedback to team members, that team member will do it and hear it. You have to show that you can do it yourself. This guy in particular, if any of your listeners are from South Africa, they would know. He was this kind of big, burly Afrikaner. He'd been in the army and anyone who's been in the South African army is like hardcore. And yet this guy was able to show vulnerability. And I know that's kind of a cliche word right now, but there were occasions where he would backtrack himself. He would say, you know what? I was wrong there. And admit when he was wrong and apologize. Seeing that in a guy where it would be unexpected helped me to trust him. That's what I would say would be the easiest way to gain trust is just to be that open. That's great. All right. There's that sound. So it's time for some fun questions. Are you ready for those questions? Yeah. All right. The first one is, what is your favorite sound? In the summertime, when the windows are open, it's that sound in the morning when I first wake up of the birds and the leaves rustling. There's nothing I like more. It's that peaceful awakening that just starts my day on the right foot. That's great. Yeah. Agreed. All right. Number two, if you could instantly become an expert in something, what would it be? Ooh, singing. I'll tell you why. The, I used to sing, never professionally. And it was one of the ways that I forgot about time. I was part of this band camp. I, I was put in this band, basically, of, of strangers I'd never met. I thought I was going to be a backup singer. And they said, I know none of us sing, so you're the lead. And it was the scariest thing I've ever done. We weren't singing professionally, but we had to sing in front of many people. I was an okay singer, but oh, if I could just like take a pill and have that grand voice with a huge range so I could just step into those moments of complete presence, that would be amazing. Well, I have to ask if you had to have a voice, maybe it's another singer, maybe because it's the range or whatever that is, whose voice would you want to have? There's a few. The first one that comes to mind though, because I was listening to Respect on the weekend, just that range, yes. just uh, that range and that power she has in her voice is just so, was, it was just so phenomenal. Yes, she absolutely was. And being a Southeastern Michigan Detroiter, and that's where she's from, I'm a big fan. Well, Jen, thank you so much. Really good pieces. I love the three O's and the three P's. I love looking at the patterns and asking yourself really hard questions to be honest with yourself to, in order to change those leadership behaviors and actually understand them and implement them in your own authentic way, different ways that you can build trust with your team as well. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Stacey. It's been a pleasure. And that concludes another episode of Leadership Moments. We hope you found inspiration and valuable insights in what we shared today. Remember, leadership is not defined solely by titles or positions, but by the choices we make and the moments that shape us.
embrace the challenges that come your way. They may be the very moments that propel you toward greatness. We'd love to hear your thoughts and stories as well. Connect with us on our website at leadershipmomentspodcast.com or through social media on Instagram at tap underscore be the game changer. And Stacey Castor underscore. Remember, your leadership moment could be just around the corner waiting for you to seize it. This is Stacey Castor, and what doesn't challenge you won't change you. This is Tracy Ann Palmer, and be the change you wish to see in the world.